Thank you so much, honey. Appreciate that. Children, you may uh, go to your church time classes. If you're staying up here, we're going to be, I think so. I think so. Are we all good? Luke 11. Luke 11 in your Bibles. Please take the time to turn there. and We're in an ongoing study of the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in it for another few weeks. Advent, believe it or not, is coming up real fast. Holidays are upon us, and we look forward to those opportunities around Christmas and Thanksgiving to meet uh, other guests and, and share the Gospel, have opportunities that we don't normally have. Luke chapter 11, uh, we're in the midst of this long section on the hostilities that Christ is facing as a result of his ministry, and I want to begin with this question. What do you believe is the greatest danger to the church today? What is the greatest danger to the church today? If we made a list, if we broke up into breakout groups, we probably could come up with several uh, that would rise to the top of, of great dangers. Perhaps it's the persecution. I think, uh, I think Christians in other nations would say it's the, it's the persecution that they face in China and the Middle East when they want to gather. Uh, they, they, are, they are under threat of, of death and persecution. Maybe some of us would say it's the it's the postmodern culture. It's the, it's the culture that has forsaken all truth and, and there's no anchor to any sort of, uh, you know, it's all his truth or her truth. There's no the truth any longer. Some would say it's maybe the hostility that the church faces or the false teaching. But I would suggest that the greatest danger to the church today, perhaps the gravest danger, comes from biblically literate, morally conservative, religious people who live their lives as hypocrites, far from God. There is a deadly nature that resides in this spiritual hypocrisy. Uh, and one pastor has gone so far as to say that he believes the greatest mission field is in all the world are the pews of the church because there are so many people gathered today in different churches. I'm not talking just Baptist churches, but in, in churches around the globe that they think that they're putting in their hour time and, and stamp of approval is on their lives, and they're a good person. They're a religious person. They're a moral person. Did you know that in the Bible, Jesus' harshest words are reserved for religious people? He does not go after the acknowledged sinner. I mean, he confronts that person. Think of the compassion, though, he had in John 4 on the woman at the well versus the conversation that we're going to look at today. I wrote somewhere in these notes, and we'll get to it, that Jesus basically drops a nuclear bomb on these people, and, and he holds nothing back. Sometimes we have conversations with people, and we might offend them, and they might even say something like, hey, that kind of hurts my feelings. And we say, oh, that's not what I meant. That's not what I intended. Jesus, like, goes deeper and, and buries that knife further and, and then twists it and says, no, that's exactly what I meant. And just in case you weren't offended, let me go a little deeper than that. And these are for professed religious people. 2 Timothy 3 verse 5 says that they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. It's not real. Everything outside looks good. They follow the list of rules. They have the check marks going down that they don't participate. It used to be, what did it used to be? I don't, I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't run with girls that do. They used to, you know, this, I, this, I have these things in my life that are all lined up, but there's no reality of Christianity residing in their lives. So we're in the middle of a section where Jesus is encountering in Luke chapter 11 a lot of hostility, which stems from an exorcism that he did Kind of an innocuous miracle where he healed this mute guy and the, cast the demons out and the hearts of the onlookers were exposed. Remember the three different responses? One response was amazement. Wow, that's, that's wonderful. And Jesus says to that person, hey, 
you know, that person actually says something like, blessed is your mother, blessed is the womb that bore you, blessed are the breasts which nursed you, blessed is your mother, this is a wonderful thing. And Jesus says, no, blessed is the person who hears the word of God and does it. Don't be just amazed, but be obedient. Then another group of people thought Jesus was casting out the demon by the power of demons, by the power of Satan, which is a ridiculous theory. Right? Okay, yeah, I'm going to go against myself, and, he, and we spent a, a, a week on that. And then last week, it was the people who sought another sign. Can you imagine? I just cast out a demon. Give us one more, God, and we'll believe. And then, I mean, he does all these miracles. And remember, the, the theme from last week was it's not a problem with light. It's a problem with sight. There's plenty of information. There's plenty of light for these people to respond to the gospel and to Christ. It was a problem with their own sight. They were blind to the gospel, as all spiritual dead people are. So in the midst of this conversation, we come to Luke 11, verse number 37, and Jesus is talking about all this, and, and I think in a, in a, for, with, the, with the intent or the purpose of trying to drag Jesus away, a Pharisee comes and invites him over to dinner. Let's go ahead and read the section, most important thing we can do, and then we'll start talking about it. Luke 11, this is verse 37, we'll read to the end of the chapter. Follow along, please. While Jesus was speaking, I've kind of laid out the, the foundation of the, of the story, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. <laughs> you see what I said about Jesus' comments towards religious people. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, now I've read this all week, and I have to read it in a whiny voice because that's what it sounds like. Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us too. These lawyers are also mad. He said, woe to you lawyers also, for you lead people or load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your father, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. The story concludes with this. As he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. The, the story is, uh, it's obviously a one-shot uh, one story because it starts in verse 37 with the words went in and ends in verse 53 with the words went away. So all of this is happening in the home, in my opinion. He went into the home, 
drops this bomb, and then he went away, and the people are so upset, they now decide we're going to try to trap this guy so we can accuse him of something far greater. This is one full account of Jesus' experience with the Pharisees and the scribes. Let's talk about those people for just a minute, though you might already know everything about it. The Pharisees were a movement that had been in existence for about 200 years before Christ. The word Pharisee means separated ones or holy ones. They were staunchly opposed to any sort of Hellenistic influence. Hellenism just means the Greek culture, the Greco-Roman culture. They didn't want any Greek culture. They wanted to hold fast to the traditions of the Jews. They championed the Torah, that is the law, as the perfect expression of the will of God to the people. In other words, tradition, law, is that, is that okay? Tradition and law was of the highest regard, and they were extremely influential, and this is key. If you don't get anything else, get this. They believed in careful adherence to the written law, wait for it, and their own oral traditions, and they disdained anyone who ignored or violated either. And the key in that sentence is, and their own oral traditions. Here's what the Pharisees believed. That when Moses went up to receive the commandments, God gave him some other stuff too that wasn't codified. It wasn't written down. And, and so those oral things have been passed on through the, through the generations. And those oral things are just as valued as the written things of God's word. And in fact, they're even more important because the oral things, they said, were clearer than the written things. We, we kind of... We kind of expound on what Jesus means. Now, he does say keep the Sabbath. I'm talking as a Pharisee now. He does say keep the Sabbath, but uh, he doesn't say what we should do. You know, I mean, can we carry a bandana? Can we, can we spit on the ground? And, and, and so they, they got it. So, well, you can't carry a bandana in your pocket, but you can carry it on the back of your hand or if you wear it as a scarf. I mean, all these ridiculous rules. And if you violated them, the wrath of the Pharisees came down upon you. That's key. They disdained anyone who ignored or were negligent of their oral laws. The lawyers who are introduced down in verse number, what is it, 45, they come to Jesus hoping that he'll back off. These are keepers and studiers of the written law. They are experts in the Torah. They are the ones who kept the care of it and studied it. They were the professionals in regards to the word. And so we say, in the midst of the chapter on hostility, we say, oh, good, Oh, good, these are people that Jesus is just going to get along great with. Now, he's had some hostility with these other people, these, these sinful, immoral people. But now that he's with the Pharisees and the scribes, we're going to see some real harmony. And it actually explodes into something far greater, where he drops the nuclear bomb on this dinner party. He has a real harsh and condemning word, which is a warning to all of us about religious pretense. Religious chicanery. When you do your magic tricks, your attempt is to deceive. And a lot of people have that in their outward life, and inwardly they have nothing to show for. They are not really related to Christ. What lights this fuse? What lights this fuse? I've called it a nuclear bomb that he drops on him. You saw these harsh words as we read through the passage. What lights the fuse to this? It seems really silly. The Pharisees noticed that Jesus didn't wash his hands before the meal. Okay, you get a little confused about that. Well, this is, in our culture, we can't think in our culture, cannot think in our culture. Uh, I was getting the ice cubes out last night for our pizza, put them in the cup, and Leah says, did you wash your hands? You know, I've been outside working on the pressure wash, I agree. 
You know, it's like, I don't want to, I don't want eat ice cubes that you touch with dirty hands. That's our mindset of washing before dinner. Go wash up before, that's not what this is about. Forget the idea of physical cleanness. That's not, that's not what this is talking about. It's talking about ritual purity. It's talking about ceremony. It's talking about the traditions. So Jesus was not doing something morally wrong here when he didn't wash his hands, okay? In fact, I think he was kind of intentionally bringing something out to expose these people. Leviticus 15 Chapter 15, verse 11, states that washing was only necessary if you had touched a bodily discharge. But the Pharisees, again, added their traditions to that and held people to the standard of the tradition. This is a danger. We hold people to the standard of the word, not our traditions. So it's not being dirty, it's being ceremonially unclean. I wrote down this description just to blow your minds about what this said. The Mishnah is those oral traditions. That's... that's that's where this comes from. It comes from the Mishnah, these oral traditions. So here's what it says about hand washing. <coughs> it's a long paragraph. The hands are susceptible to uncleanness, and they are rendered cleaned up to the wrist. So if a man pours water up to the wrist and more water beyond the wrist, and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand becomes clean. But if he poured the first water and the second water beyond the wrist and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand remains unclean. If he pours the first water over the one hand alone, and he bethought himself and poured the second water over the one hand, his one hand is clean. If he poured the water on the one hand and rubbed it on the other, it becomes unclean. But if he rubs it on his head or on the wall, it becomes clean. Okay, this is the Pharisees. So Jesus just comes in and knowing all this, he doesn't do anything. And the Pharisees don't say anything. Did you notice that in the passage? The, Pharisees, the Pharisee doesn't say, hey, go wash up. The Pharisee just thinks it in his mind. At least that's what the scripture implies the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord is the one who brings this up because the Lord wants to expose this religious falseness. Okay? Doesn't that what I just read sound like such a blessing? Wouldn't you love to be a part of a group like that? How did this group survive for hundreds of years when you had to do this sort of stuff? But this is the kind of morality that Pharisees put on par with Scripture. And Jesus, of course, with all of his interaction with unclean people, and the unclean, sinful world, remember, friend of sinners and prostitutes, etc., he would definitely need to wash up. In this idea of ritual purity, we learn a lesson that the Pharisees, and, and, and one thing that's very important for us to acknowledge today is we, we like to see ourselves as the heroes of our stories. We like to see ourselves as the Jesus in the story when really we're the Pharisees in the story. We have to see and see, let, let Jesus expose our own hearts because here's what the Pharisees are thinking. We are placing ourselves up and above sinful people. And it can have a modern analogy to our lives. When we shun or disregard or ignore or refuse to interact with people who we say are sinners, for whatever reason, we don't want to become tainted by that individual. And we jeopardize ourselves if we associate with them. We have exercised the Pharisees' attitudes, right? In this regard, we become more like the Pharisees than Jesus. We used to bring in a lot of bus kids in our old church in Lapeer. I mean a lot of bus kids. We had a parents' meeting one night. Parents stood up and said, we can't stand that these kids are coming in and interacting with our kids. I said, what do you mean? Well, they do things. They say things. They, they, they have... You know, and they're tainting our little Pharisees. I couldn't believe it. 
I said, well, what do you think we're doing down in youth? You think we're all smoking weed? I mean, we're, we're, we're studying the Bible. We're singing songs. It's very monitored. Well, we just don't want our kids around those kids. Wow. That is the heart of a Pharisee. When we always criticize out there. Here's, here's a Pharisee. They see the wickedness out there. They don't see the wickedness in here. That's what a Pharisee is. You know who's a Pharisee? You know who else is? Because you, we always point the finger at the culture and the society. If it weren't for this, you know what? You could go live by yourself somewhere and you'd be sinning. It is not the culture. It is not the society, even though it does raise its fist against God. Instead of finger pointing and avoiding the undesirables, we need to be out there ministering to the, to the world, sharing the gospel with them. When is the last time you had an unbeliever eat dinner in your home? Christ did it all the time. He was always interacting with unbelievers. This is critical and important to Jesus. He is the one who is initiating this whole situation in the, in the dinner party. Here's the theme. Here's the theme of the whole message, and we're going we're gonna to break off from it now. The theme is this. A Pharisee is concerned about outer appearances and gives no attention to their own inner purity. A Pharisee is so concerned about outer appearances but gives no attention to his own or her own inner purity. For the Pharisee, outward cleanliness is of great concern and there is a disdain for Jesus who doesn't adhere to what they say they should do. Inner uncleanness is completely ignored and Jesus' response to those type of people is to call them a what? Starts with an F and sounds like tool. Calls them fools. You fools. Do you know what a fool is in the Old Testament? Psalm 14, 1, Psalm 53, 1, Psalm 92, 6, Psalm 94, 8, Proverbs 6, 12. The fool is one who fails to respond to God and his will and his ways. These are the religious people in the community. And he says, you fools. Psalm 14, 1 says, the fool says, there is what kind of God? No God. They, ha- they are, uh, these other passages that I just quoted, they, they, they are ignorant to the working of God in the world. And the Pharisees like, do you realize who you're talking to? We are the religious elites in society. And Jesus knows exactly what he's saying. You are fools. Because everything is outer. Everything is appearance. Everything is false. Inside, he says, he says, you clean the outside of a cup and a dish. Inside, you're full of greed and wickedness. Right? When you clean and wash your dishes, men, just pretend you've done this once in a while, but when you wash your dishes at home, I mean, what would you say is the critical part of the dish or cup? I mean, are you that concerned about the, I mean, we are because we like things to be clean, but if you had to choose outside or inside of the cup, which one do you want clean? No question. No question. I got a box of Captain Crunch in my office. I got a gallon of milk in the fridge. When I get hungry, that's my snack. And you know what happens if I leave that bowl sitting there for a while after I've eaten? It gets disgusting. I don't go ahead and just have like, anything else in there till it's clean. And Jesus is saying, you're cleaning the outside of these. It's just an analogy, but you're cleaning the outside of things, and the inside, it's greed and wickedness. You guys are robbery, robbers. You extort people. You have no integrity, and they are evil and unclean and wicked. This is, this is the crux of things. Pharisees say the wickedness is out there and we cannot associate with it. Jesus says the wickedness is in here and you have to confess it. That's the difference. So don't think about the evil in the culture. Think about the evil in your own heart. That's what I must think about too. The wickedness that resides within. 
That is why I'm unclean, and that is the more important thing. And I believe Jesus gives a figure of speech to help us address this. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? You fools. Doesn't he make the outside and inside? Verse 41 is key, and it's hard to understand. Let me try to explain it. Verse 41 says, give as alms those things that are within. Give as alms. I mean, is all of a sudden Jesus changing it to start talking about offerings and tithing? This is a, a Hebrew idiom or a Jewish phrase, give as alms, which reflects a sensitive concern for others, right, to give alms to someone, and takes intentionality and sacrifice. So what Jesus is saying here is give concern, give sacrifice, and be intentional about giving the things that are within, right? The, the thought here is up for dispute, but here's what J.C. Ryle says, and, and just an excellent man of God from years and years ago. Give, here's how he explains this give alms section. Give first the offering of the inward man. Give yourself, your character, your motives to the Lord, and then your actions will be accepted. Look at verse 41. That's exactly how I read it. Give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything will be clean for you. Basically saying, worry about the inside first, and the outside will be what? Well, outside's going to take care of itself. This is, this is the important thing. Character counts. It's not the outward, the, it's not the outward activity that Christ is, oh, wow, look at, look at that person. Christ sees the inside. And so give as alms. Here's, here's, what I, here's a great application for all of us. Let us be concerned. Let us be intentional about examining our own character. I meant to write down another statement of Ryle, and I forgot to, so I'll have to paraphrase it, which won't be as good. But he said something at the end of his chapter on this about uh, every one of us must look inside and be willing to see the vileness and uncleanness that resides within us and then confess it and ask God to cleanse us from that and stop worrying so much about what others think of us or the outward appearance. That is, that is what a Pharisee does. He explains further what Pharisees do. He actually, and this is, where, this is where the rest of the message will go, he actually pronounces six woes on the people who are listening. Three of them are for the Pharisees, and three of them are for the scribes. And we'll have to, we'll have to do this fairly quickly. But follow along with me. I'll give you the verse I'll give you the woe. When, when someone says woe, it's kind of like saying alas, or it's a pronouncement of judgment, or it's a denunciation of the people for this reason. I, I think I've said before, it, can, it, it almost can be like a whew, you know, like that sort of expression in our language. What is the first thing he pronounces judgment on the Pharisees for? It's in verse 42. The first woe is this, you major on minors. You major on minors. See in verse 42, you tithe your herbs, but you neglect justice and love. Leviticus 27.30 does talk about the tithing of herbs, and in the Old Testament there was an understanding that people gave 10% of their goods, 10% of their income to God. Jesus is saying these people counted, counted out their herbs and spices you know, to the last decimal point because they wanted to be sure that they fulfilled the law. But they were ignoring the greater importance of commitments to man and God. They would not defend the weak. They would not love the outsider. They would not care for the poor. They would not try to win the lost. 
Micah 6, 8 says, What does the Lord require of you, O man, but to do justly, to have mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Jesus doesn't say tithing is wrong. In fact, he says you should do that. You should tithe your herbs. Go ahead. But don't ignore the weighty matters of religion. Don't ignore the weighty things that reflect the character of God. It's basically the difference between being concerned about small actions or heart attitudes, right? You pull out your daily bread, and you got the checklist at the back of the thing, and you say, I read my Bible today. I read my Bible today. And then you go out, and you won't talk to anybody in your community. You won't share the gospel with anybody. You harbor grudges against people, right? You will not forgive or show justice or mercy to other people. You, 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 you uh, get angry very quickly, but you marked off your checkmark in the daily bread, right? That's the idea. Well, I'm doing what is right. But you're totally missing the big things. It's not having any impact on you, right? That's what Christ is saying. Are we focusing on Pharisees focus on these small actions, where true followers of Christ are concerned about these big heart attitudes. That's what Jesus is saying. And I'm constantly reminded of the fact that no one brought this up but Jesus. No, I mean, the guy didn't say, Jesus, why didn't you wash your hands? He wants to express this. It's that critical and that important. Second woe is in verse 43. Majoring on the minors, woe number one. Woe number two, seeking attention and recognition. Seeking attention and recognition. That's what Pharisees do. They want to be noticed. They can't stand it when they do something and no one acknowledges it. Verse 43, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. This doesn't just mean, hey, rabbi, or hey, Pharisee. This is an elaborate greeting of recognition and respect. Right? They, they desired that from people. And it revealed in their own hearts and in the hearts of all Pharisees a pride in wanting to be noticed and respected of wanting and craving recognition for their spiritual accomplishments. No one noticed me. Did anyone see that I... Whatever. Pastor never acknowledges that I... Whatever. Right? Do you grow resentful when you're unnoticed? Or when you're unappreciated, are you doing things only to receive credit and honor and recognition? Then you are reflecting the heart of a Pharisee. They seek attention. Woe number three is in verse number 44, and this is, this is really criminal. It's that they are deadly influencers. They are deadly influencers. This is a, something to, to sit on for just a second. Woe to you. This is the third woe. That's how I kind of outline them. There's a woe in verse 42. You major on minors. You care about small things. You don't care about the big things that really matter to God. 43, you love honor. You love recognition. You love attention. You're doing things for that reason, not really truly for a heart for God. And then 44, you're, you have deadly influence. See it? You are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. I think there's a twofold indictment that Christ is making. First of all, he's telling them, you're spiritually dead. You're spiritually dead. You're a grave. And just put yourself in the minds. It would be, it would be like, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a of a modern analogy, and I guess I can't. Uh, like the the group of pastors in the community meeting at uh, Simpson Park for a breakfast, and and uh, and and Christ coming there and and saying, "This is the problem with the society. It's you religious phonies." That's what's happening with the Pharisees. These are, these are the people that, hey, they greet us in the marketplace. We have the best seats in the synagogues. We know the law. We study it. These, these morons don't know anything. 
And Christ is the one indicting them, saying, you are actually spiritually dead. There is no spiritual vitality or life in you. You're not real. You're dead. And not only are you dead yourselves, but you are a deadly influence on others. What does the phrase unmarked graves there mean? Well, uh, Dave mentioned in a Sunday school this morning, if you touched an, a dead body or, an un, or a, a, a corpse, you were unclean for a week, according to Levitical law. You were unclean for a week. So in order to avoid that, right, in order to avoid that, they would whitewash, you've heard that scripture term before, they would whitewash the graves. So they would be very visible. So if kids are playing outside or you're walking down the road and it's dark, oh, cemetery over there, graveyard over there, we have to avoid it. They're whitewashed, we avoid it, so we remain clean. What Jesus is saying is, you are unmarked graves. In other words, the warning is, is hidden from people who are coming near to you. They don't recognize that when they follow your teaching, when they listen to what you say, and they observe your actions, they're actually coming near death. You are death traps to people that want to know the truth. That's, that's a low blow, if it wasn't true. Right? Christ is just hammering them. Your lifestyle is a death trap. It's a warning to us that moral, religious, conservative people who are only concerned about outer appearances and desire so much for people to acknowledge them are death traps to people who are truly seeking Christ. Their teaching, their philosophy is leading people to death. That's when the, that's when the lawyer steps in. You're offending us. That's why I read it in a whiny voice. You're offending us, Lord. And you know what normally happens there? Like if, you're, like if you've had conversations like that before and, and you can kind of sense people are getting upset with, by what you're saying, so you back down. Well, I, I didn't, let me rephrase that. Let me, let me say that a different way. Let me really, Christ doubles down hard. <laughs> can you just imagine the scene? I, I try to picture it in my mind when I'm reading it. So he's reclining at the table and he's just blasting away at this Pharisee who invited him to his home. He invited into his home and, and starts saying, you major on minors, you seek attention, you are a literal spiritual death trap to people, you fool. I mean, those are Christ's words, you fool. And, the, and you can almost see the lawyer, Jesus, that insults us too, right? And Jesus whips around, look at the scripture. I'm kind of I'm mocking it because these people are so spiritually immature. And he turns right around and starts unloading on them. Well, woe to you too lawyer, and he gives them three rows real quick. I start with the letter B on all of these because it helps me. They are burdening, they are building, and they are blocking. They are burdening, building, and blocking. Let's talk about each one quickly. So he turns to them and their false religi religiosity, if that's a word. First of all, they're burdening people, verse 46. You can just see the woe, the word woe in the passage, and that will help you to hang your thought on each one. Verse 46, woe to you lawyers. You load people with burdens hard to bear, and you won't touch it with one of your fingers. Remember I told you we have the scripture and then we have the Mishnah. We have the oral law. We have the oral tradition. And they say the oral tradition is just as important. So here's a huge burden, right? I read it to you, right? If the second water and the first water hit the hand and the wrist, I mean, that's, that's a burden that people just cannot bear. And so Jesus is saying, you're burdening these people. And then he says something that's, that uh, we must examine. He says, but you won't touch it with a finger. And that could mean either one of two things and both are bad. It could either mean you're doing nothing to help them and encourage them, right? You're burdening them. You're telling them, you got to do all this stuff, and then you're just backing off saying, oh, they can't do it, <laughs> right? They're just burdening them. Or it could mean that you burden them with these things, but you don't do it yourselves. 
And I think that's more what it means. That you're, you're so hypocritical that you're laying on people all of these extra biblical uh, concerns and laws, but you're not touching it yourself, hypocrite, fool. Woe to you, he says. Then he says, the second thing, verse 47, is, is the building. Verse 47 is building. And uh, if you look at that, woe to you for you who build the tombs of the prophets uh, whom your fathers killed. Whom your fathers killed. Now, what does this mean? In the Kidron Valley, there are tombs that uh, housed tombs of the prophets. And to honor a prophet's ministry, they would, uh, they would build a tomb or erect a tomb in order to uh, honor this prophet's ministry. And Jesus is saying, you build those tombs, but you actually kill the prophets. Jesus says, you kill these prophets. Woe to you who build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Thanks, guys. See you. Yeah, thanks for letting him come. Basically, Jesus is saying, you're like father, like son. They re- you act like this is something real great where you're building these tombs, but actually, you are, you, your hearts are still very far from God. Now, who is the greatest prophet of all? Who is the greatest capital P prophet of all? It's Christ who comes and told us of how we can be right with God and how would they treat and respond to that prophet. These people who Jesus are talking to right now, what are they going to do to him? Eventually going to take him out and they're going to crucify him. Verse 49 says that in the wisdom of God, I just believe that that means in God's sovereignty, he sent prophets to you who were not listened to, but they were killed. And in fact, it goes from verse 51, from Abel, who was killed by his brother Cain. For what reason? He was killed because Abel believed that it was a blood sacrifice that was necessary to come to to, to come to God. Cain killed him. All the way to Zechariah. It doesn't mean A to Z, right? We might say that in our language. Well, from A to Z. But Zechariah just happens to have a Z name. And he was in Second Chronicles 29, which is kind of the last of the Old Testament books, not in our Bibles, but in the last in time, if that makes sense. Zechariah was stoned in the courtyard for rebuking the people for their disobedience to the law. So from Abel, one of the very first men who ever lived, to Zechariah, one of the very last men in the Old Testament to ever live, you haven't responded to any of those prophets. But you go out and you build them tombs, you build them, you build them these wonderful monuments in their memory. You're hypocrites. It's not about building, it's about following their teaching. Hosea 6, 6 and 7, Micah 6, 8, Habakkuk 2, 4. All of these are expressive teachings on what the prophets expected and demanded, and they listened to none of them. Woe to you, Jesus is saying, because even in your building of tombs, you are not truly honoring the prophets. The way to truly honor a prophet is to what? What is the way to truly honor a prophet? To listen to him and obey him, right? To listen to him and obey him. When the warning is sounded, they respond to it. Just as a quick aside, how are we to respond to the greatest prophet, Christ? Now, when I call him a prophet, I'm not minimizing his godness, his deity. I'm just saying he had a prophetic office. And in that office, he came to express or declare what God desired from us. How do we respond to him? We respond rightly to Christ by confessing our sin and repenting of it. That is, turning from it, making a break from it, and turning to God. And believing that he, Dave read it for us this morning, that he and he alone is the only way to God. That there is no Christ plus anything that earns us God's favor. That it is Christ's 
earthly life, his perfect uh, living out of all of God's demands, and then it is his sacrificial, vicarious death. We read about it in our, in our statement of faith this morning. Here's the way to respond to him, to believe that he accomplished our redemption through his death on the cross as our representative. He died on the cross where Andy should have been. He was a vicarious substitutionary atonement. He satisfied God's wrath that was rightly deserved for me. I, as a sinful, by nature human, and by actions rebellious sinner against God, deserved his wrath and deserved spiritual death and separation from God forever, and there is nothing I could bring to him to offer him that he would accept to say, oh, okay, I'll forget all of that. A lot of people like to offer good works or religious deeds. God says all of those things are as filthy rags. The only way to respond is to say, thank you, Christ, for living the life that I was supposed to live and dying the death that I was supposed to die and that in my place condemned you stood so that I can have my sins washed away forever and now I live in that grace. I don't live by works now. I don't, in other words, I don't try to earn God's favor now by doing things. When I sin, I continue to live all by the grace of God. That is the right way to respond to Christ. And if you have never done that, the urgent need is for you to do that today. To not put that off, but to trust Christ completely. The last thing that scribes do is they block people. They block people from actually hearing the message I just shared with you. That's what verse 52 says, where the last woe is inserted. We're almost done. Thanks for faithfully listening. Woe to you, Lawyers, for you taken away the key of knowledge. Hmm. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who entered. You took away the key of knowledge. What did I tell you the lawyers were responsible for? They were scribes who studied the law. That's what the key of knowledge is. They had that key of knowledge. They had all that information. And they did not use it to enter into a right relationship with God. And in fact, they actually hindered others from coming into it by distorting that law. We can do that by emphasizing works that don't depend on grace by condemning, uh, by condemning others to, uh, by not fully explaining what the gospel is, that it's an offer to all who, can, who will receive Christ in truth by repenting and entrusting his death. It's worse that they haven't entered themselves. It's, it's bad that they haven't entered themselves. It's worse that they have caused others to be blocked. These are the spiritual and religious leaders who should be explaining and exposing the gospel of Christ, but in fact, they're actually forbidding others to come in because they're hiding that truth, even based on their own false religion. Application. What do we do with all this information? Uh, we must do something with it, so let me say three things. Okay? Let me say three things. I actually have six. I'll try to summarize it in three. First thing, obviously, okay, what do, what do we do? What do we take away with this information? Start cultivating inner purity. Focus on inner purity. Cultivate inner purity. Stop worrying about outer pretense. Stop worrying so much about what others are thinking and concern yourself with inner heart attitudes. Develop that inner purity through a faithful relationship with God through his word, through prayer, through honesty, through accountability. Stop pretending that everything is okay. Stop pointing out everyone else's sin in the culture and start looking at your own. I mean, what would be more abominable, an unbeliever who is sinning because that's by nature what they do, or a believer who's pretending that he has it all together when inside I'm harboring some secret sin? Right? We sin according to knowledge, Scripture says. Second, 
don't overemphasize the minors, right? Don't overemphasize these minor things. Develop these heart attitudes that, that uh, Christ was presenting to the Pharisees. And third, honor God's word through your obedience. Honor God's word through your obedience. What you read in the scripture, attempt to do through the power and strength of the spirit that resides within you. Strive for personal integrity. See yourself as the Pharisee. That's the biggest thing. Put yourself in this story as the Pharisee. Let the words of Christ sink into your heart, you fool. I'm speaking to me too. You fool. Stop worrying about the outside. Wash the inside. Cleanse the inside. Stop looking for attention. Right? You are a deadly death trap to people when you do that. But instead, honor the prophets by responding to their word and through personal obedience seek to cultivate that inner purity. Let's commit our time to God in prayer and then we'll sing a closing hymn. Our Father, we're thankful for your word today and for the, the words of Christ which are harsh to us today, harsh to our false religion, harsh to our uh, outer pretense, our pretend uh, religiosity, our phoniness. God, strip that all away and help us to be concerned about the inside as you are. Help us not to worry about recognition. We know that you see our labors of love and will reward us. That's all that matters is that we're doing this unto you. Help us to not keep people from the gospel by putting extra weights on them as the scribes did. Help us to stop seeing all of the wickedness around us and make our eyes see the wickedness within us clearly. And as we confess it and trust you to forgive us, we ask that you would grow us into the image of Christ who we love so much. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. The last hymn we have is in our book. And the third verse is really what we want to get to. We're going to sing all the verses. But the third verse is really the concluding verse which expresses what we've tried to express in the message today. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face, even those evils within you are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. That's where we're going to tonight. Oh, great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. We're going to sing all the verses. Let's express that to God. Let's stand together as we conclude our service. Oh, great God of highest heaven. Oh, great God of highest heaven.